Well, this is, this is really fun. I, I really liked Roy um, calling us out that he's way more Northwest than the rest of us are 500, you know, was however many hundred miles Northwest. That was fun. Um, and with, in his service with, with Marcellus and Roy, Mark, myself, Bill Hole, you guys are getting on the Zoom session of worship today, something that, that those who met here at the building earlier didn't get. And it was an all bald guy lineup. That rarely happens. Our song leaders in a normal Sunday really break up that, the chances of that happening. Uh, so this is a special day, uh, all, all bald lineup at Northwest Church of Christ to start 2021. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have heard of a website called Cameo. I, uh, I've never used it, but I really enjoyed looking at Cameo. Uh, it's a website that you can go to that has uh, all kinds of different celebrities. And when you go to look at the different celebrities you can choose from, uh, you can hire them. And you hire them and you give them to basically make a video birthday card or announcement or congratulations uh, for somebody that you would like, that would enjoy having that celebrity tell them happy birthday or congratulations or, or whatever it is. Um, the thing I probably enjoy the most is not necessarily watching the people's birthday messages or shout outs to the people that they're uh, hired to talk to. It's seeing how much the celebrities are charging for about 20 seconds of their time. You know, what do your uh, birthday message is worth. And so if you're a Thunder fan, you can go have Lou Dort uh, send someone a record a little message, a shout out to someone that might enjoy that. Um, he last season was $15 for a little message. That's that's the low end of a cameo appearance, but he's a lot more now. He uh, once you defend, you know, James Harden for uh, seven games, you, you get to raise your cameo price. Um, but but one of the things that's interesting and why I bring this up uh, is that the categories you can search for are uh, athletes, celebrities, TV stars, movie stars, Disney channel stars. And then there's a category called influencer. Influencer. And what influences are, influencers are, are people who are famous because of their YouTube or TikTok or uh, Twitter accounts, uh, that they are social media celebrities. And they influence because they have so many followers who are interested in their opinions for often no other reason other than so many other people follow them. And so if you're a company, you can hire an influencer to promote your restaurant or brand or something else. Uh, you might be fascinated in what they think about politics or other movements or causes they support. They're, they're influential uh, because they have followers. And, you know, I don't know anyone at Northwest that has uh, 100,000, a million followers on, on Instagram. Um, if you do, you should really start retweeting our sermons. That would be great. We could really kind of reach some, some more people, grow our audience. Uh, but every one of us does have a sphere of influence. Uh, every one of us could draw a circle around our two feet and uh, when we draw our, our, that circle around our feet, we know that we are influencing at least the person whose feet is in our circle. We have a high level of control over what I do or what you do. You can control that. 
But if we start thinking more about who else do we have some level of influence or control over in our lives, and, and not necessarily control, but who is someone who cares about your opinion? Who is someone who is interested in your actions and is likely to do a similar thing because you do it? And then you kind of stretch that sphere, that circle around your feet, and maybe your family, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your siblings are all of a sudden in this circle. Doesn't mean that they always uh, do everything that you do, but they're interested in how you make your choices and it might affect how they make their choices. And then if you think about other people, maybe neighbors, friends, uh, people that you've known for many years, uh, people that you go to school with or go to work with, uh, come into your sphere of influence. They are people who are to some level are affected by the things you say, the things you think, the way you live. They are in your sphere of influence. And so the more your sphere grows and the more people that come into it, the more what you do has an effect on what other people might be doing. And there's some people at Northwest uh, that while you may not have a million Twitter followers, have a great deal of influence. We've got a lot of people that are natural born leaders. We've got a lot of people that God has gifted with the spiritual gift of leadership. Uh, that they have a great deal uh, of impact on the people that are around them. That when they do something, others notice. Uh, that when you are opposed to something, others are more likely to be opposed to it. When you are in favor of something, others are more likely to be in favor of that thing. And, and I want you to be thinking a little bit today about who is in your sphere of influence. Who's in your circle of people that you can affect? Because over the next couple of weeks, as we spend time thinking about what it means to be uh, centered on the gospel, what it means to be people that are anchored in the good news of Jesus Christ, I want you to be thinking how that should have some impact on the people in your circle, the people that have some uh, interest in the way you live your life. Their lives should be impacted by the gospel as a result of you being a person who is rooted in the gospel. At Northwest, as a church, when we think about what it means to be a gospel-centered and anchored church, that, that our feet are truly anchored on the firm foundation of the good news of Jesus, that should impact how we function. It should impact how we do ministry and how we think about what ministries we should do and shouldn't do. Um, there's a lot of things that Christians do that are right for Christians to be doing, but that aren't necessarily connected to the gospel. And so we need to really get in and explore what are the things that are of first importance? What are the things that are most significant? What are the things that are, are, are essentially rooted to this message uh, of the good news of Jesus Christ? Um, and, and so we begin by kind of looking at the passage that, uh, that Roy read for us earlier this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, which says this, now, brothers and sisters, Hermanos, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you were saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And I want to stop there for a second to just point out, Paul gives all kinds of instructions in his letters to churches. Paul talks about uh, morality, what's good to do. He talks about immorality, what's bad to do and you shouldn't do. He talks about things that are wise and unwise. He talks about how to hold each other accountable. He talks about what good godly character looks like. 
Uh, Paul gives all kinds of instructions, but he says, listen, if you follow all the instructions I give you, but you don't have the gospel, then your faith is a waste of time. You could just throw it away. It's in vain. It is meaningless and worthless. The gospel is everything. It is core. It is essential. It is of first importance. And the other stuff is window dressing. Now, now the other stuff is going to get layered onto the foundation and be good and valuable and important to Christian living. But if you have all the other stuff but no gospel, it's just garbage. Paul continues, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Paul continues going on and talking about how Jesus would eventually appear to hundreds of others, and that he is called to be an apostle of this Jesus, and the, uh, as an apostle, what Paul wants you to know is that Jesus, crucified, buried, and resurrected, is the core of all Christian belief, faith, life, and, and what we proclaim and how we live should all be rooted in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected on the third day. That That is the most important, he calls it a first importance, the most important element of our faith. Everything else is second importance, uh, second importance at best. Uh, everything else comes after that uh, being rooted in the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Why does it matter, though? Why does it matter that Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected? Um, there's lots of historical events that are certainly significant, and, and the fact that Jesus did die on the cross and was raised on the third day is an historical event. It is a thing that happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that took place on the other side of the world and that all of a sudden started to change things. But why did it change things? Why would it matter that Jesus was killed by Romans, that he was buried in a tomb, that three days later the women went to find him and give him burial rites and, and perfumes and other things and found the tomb empty? What difference does that make in my life? What difference does that make in our church's way of, of doing things? How are we shaped by this story of something that took place 2,000 years ago? And, and as we get into this in the coming weeks, we're going to see how the gospel is not just something that we believe happened, but it's something that gives an anchor to our lives in the midst of all of life's storms. It's something that shapes our way of living as we try and think about what it means to be Christians, the followers of Jesus, in our lives and in our homes and our workplaces and in Zoom rooms and, and wherever our world takes us this year. Uh, what does it mean to be shaped by this story of Jesus? And we're going to keep looking at that. But as we evaluate, and I think this is where we, we start. It's either where we start or where we end. I, I couldn't decide. We're putting it at the beginning. How do you evaluate whether someone is a gospel-anchored person? How do you evaluate if a family is ordering the way that their family operates, uh, order, if they order their way their family operates in the gospel? What does it look like if a church is truly about the story of Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected? How do you tell? 
What's the evidence of that? And I think a lot of times the church has evaluated whether or not that is the case by just asking, is that church successful? Is that church growing numerically? Is that church adding building projects? And is that church having a successful uh, bank account balance? Is that church doing all kinds of activities? Are they successful? And you can ask the same questions of individuals. Uh, if you are someone who is going through the activity of doing Christian things in Christian ways and with great um, success that other people can look at you and go, look at the Christian productivity in that person's life, that that could be a measure being rooted in the gospel. But there's a problem with that. It's a problem that we've seen all kinds of different ways, especially in different churches, uh, where it, it becomes clear that there are unhealthy churches led by unhealthy leaders that have grown a lot, that have had a ton of what we would consider success. Thousands of members, huge buildings, great programs, lots of other churches wishing they could be like them, uh, trying to copy what they've been able to do, programs that, that are, are implemented in other places so that they can have the kind of success of those kinds of churches, while under the surface, there's all kinds of immorality. There's all kinds of greed and selfishness. There's all kinds of um, things that have no place in a gospel-oriented culture and community that are creeping underneath the surface and behind the scenes. And so success in and of itself can't possibly be the way that we evaluate whether or not a church is rooted in Jesus and his story. And so a lot of times as a reaction to that, I think what we want to do is say, well, it's really all about faithfulness. That as a church, and maybe as a preacher, as a parent of a family that wants to be obeying the gospel in our lives, perhaps I could just evaluate whether or not I'm doing a good job by just measuring my faithfulness. Am I being obedient? Am I being uh, the kind of person and praying in the word and being faithful in, in my thoughts and actions uh, to God in a way that is, is like that? Uh, the thing that I think causes that to fall a little bit short is I think we all know churches that have been very, very faithful to the gospel, and yet either due to laziness or incompetence have done nothing. They just don't make a difference in the world. That the, While they're faithful to God, and, and while they have this spiritual faithfulness to them, that they're of no earthly good. And so if you think about the times that Jesus says that, that when the kingdom comes, that it's going to be like salt and it's going to be like light, you get this idea that the kingdom, when it shows up in its best forms, is always going to make a difference. It's always going to have an impact. It doesn't leave the places it touches uh, unchanged. And so for churches that are faithful but don't make any impact on the world around them, I think they're falling short of the kind of calling that God has for gospel-centered communities of faith. And it's true whether it's a community that's an entire congregation, or it's true whether it's a community of a family, or even a, a group of one. When you think about your life, if you are uh, successful as a productive Christian, but you've got, you're rotten on the inside, then you've got nothing. If you are someone who is faithful, but no one around you becomes affected by the kingdom of God as a result of you doing anything, 
then maybe you're just not really where God wants you to be. And so it, it comes to really, it rises to the top that what God is looking for is individuals, families, and people uh, and, and churches that are fruitful. Fruitfulness becomes an incredible marker, an incredible way of thinking about, are we being the kind of people that God really desires to be? Are we being fruitful? Now, fruitfulness comes up over and over again, especially in Paul's writing, but a few other places in the New, New Testament. Uh, in John chapter 15, Jesus is talking about it, and he says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So that being a disciple of Jesus is not just about saying, Jesus, I believe in you, and, and I believe that you are God's son, and I will live my life accordingly, but it has this active element that God is glorified as a result of our being disciples of Jesus. We produce fruit showing ourselves to be disciples, that when we follow Jesus, that others can visibly see it, that we are producing fruit in some form. Uh, Paul talks about fruit in different ways. Uh, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 13, he says this, I don't want you to be aware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you. And he's talking to the church in Rome. He says, I, I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now. In order that I may have a harvest, or in some translations it actually says, obtain some fruit from among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Paul says, listen, Rome, I want so badly to come and to visit you because I believe if I can come and spend time with you and preach to you and show you uh, the truth of the gospel, that it will bear fruit. And for Paul, you understand in this passage that what he means is people who do not currently believe in Jesus will come to believe in Jesus. People that are not currently disciples will become disciples of Jesus. Paul, in this passage, is saying that the fruit is conversions, that, that evangelism, when done uh, in this way, produces new disciples that then go on to produce new disciples. But it's not always numerical growth and conversions and baptisms and, and the growth of the kingdom in that way that Paul's thinking about when he talks about fruit. Uh, in the later letter to the Galatians, uh, chapter 5, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit, which is his way of saying, If the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you as someone who is in Christ and has the Spirit in you, the Spirit is going to start producing fruit in you. And he's not talking about converts at this point. What he's talking about is the development of godly character that the character traits of God will begin to take form in your life and, and in your inner self in a way that begins to produce fruit in your outer visible self, so that the fruit of the Spirit in your life is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The fruit that is produced by the Spirit in us is godly character. Uh, later in, in Romans uh, chapter 15, 
actually I'm gonna lift this one up. Uh, in Romans chapter 15, Paul is talking to uh, those who have given much and how they have been generous and kind in, in their sharing of their own resources. Uh, and he says there, he says, uh, starting in verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure they have received this contribution, I'll go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. And this contribution that they made, uh, Paul describes as a fruitful giving, a fruitful uh, sharing of things. And so that gives us the idea, this, this kind of idea that Paul has, that there is something in generosity and there's something for caring for those who are poor and suffering uh, that is fruitful, good deeds and uh, mercy to the poor. Uh, and then finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 through 9, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. The passage here shows that Paul's understanding is that we are co-workers with God, that we have some partnership with him in producing a harvest in this world, but that we are also the field. That, that in us is sown seed, that God waters and that God tends and God cares for through the Spirit, that in us fruit is born. Fruit is, uh, is born out of that work of God planting and developing in us something that then begins to produce fruit in the world, where we're not only the field, we are also the co-worker, that we partner with God in seeing uh, that fruit is born. And so over and over again, what we see is in, in the world, we know that success is not a great indicator as to whether or not an individual or a church is rooted in the gospel. We know that faithfulness in and of itself, while good and, and certainly part of getting where we need to go, is not the end goal. That there are churches and people that are incredibly faithful, make a difference in the world. And over and over again, Jesus calls and expects those who follow him to be salt and light, to make a difference, to change things, to be um, in the business of making a difference for the kingdom of God. And so what we really see is that fruitfulness becomes the measure of how we are rooted in God. That fruitfulness becomes an indication to ourselves and others that God is working in us to produce character and in us to produce virtue and in us to grow up uh, spiritual people that are constantly becoming more like Jesus Christ and more in the image of God, but that he's also, as a result of that, uh, changing the world around us that it changes how we interact with the poor, that it changes how we tell people about who our God is and about his son who lived and died and was raised on the third day so that they could be saved, that we begin doing all these things in a way that makes a difference. And when we focus on these things, what we see is that we become accountable to produce kingdom growth. We're dependent on the Holy Spirit. We are rooted in faith 
but we're also rooted in God's provision for us that we don't think it's our own works that are doing it like someone who's more interested in success. We're aware that it's God working in us and through us to make his fruit come to come to fruition in our lives and in the lives of those uh, around us. And the other thing that it does is, is when we have this awareness that it really is God doing these things in us and through us, it keeps us from thinking that we're the big deal, that we're in, in charge. Uh, and it helps us to instead remain expectant on God showing up to grow us and to grow others, to make a difference in us and to help us make a difference in, in others. Um, the flip side of this uh, is that when we have success, we give God credit. We usually get that one, but sometimes what we forget is when, when we're failures, we don't get to take all the responsibility for that too. Like we really are partners with God in the doing of this. And we're sharing with God in our successes and failures and trusting that he's going to grow us and make a difference in others' lives when we're winning and when we're losing, that he's often redeeming not just our successes, but he's redeeming our failures. And that God's showing up in all of these moments to help us grow and to help us change those who are around us and make the world a better place. And so fruitfulness comes when the gospel is the core and foundation of our lives. And we live it out in a way that's meaningful uh, in our culture. And, and I want to take just a minute as we think about how we live that out. And so this is, we've talked about how to evaluate whether or not the gospel is at the core of our lives. And the other thing I want to talk about as we enter into this conversation uh, over the next couple of weeks is how we start. How do we start being people who live like gospel people? And I want to suggest that the first thing we have to do is we need to be aware that the gospel is not the same in every life and in every church and in every culture, that it is presented in humans and to humans. And because the word of God is always presented by humans and to humans, it's very contextual that it is relevant and, and needs to be shaped towards every different culture. And that might make us a little bit uncomfortable to hear the gospel is different to different people. Uh, it's different coming out of different people's mouths. It's different as it goes into different people's ears. And if you want to see someone kind of wrestling with this in Scripture, what you can do is just go to Acts and look at Paul's different evangelistic sermons. And one of the things you'll notice is that as Paul tries to tell the story of the gospel in several different locations in the book of Acts, he does it very, very differently. And it's not because the gospel is changing as he's telling it. It's not because Paul, as the one who is proclaiming it, is, is changing, although I do think he's learning as he tells it from some of his previous mistakes. Uh, what's really coming through is that Paul understands that to the Jews, he becomes like the Jews. To those who are not under the law, he becomes like those who are not under the law. To those who uh, are living in certain ways, he tries to live and communicate in certain ways. That Paul understands that the gospel must be proclaimed according to the context that you're trying to proclaim it. And that it must be lived according to the context you're trying to live it. I think one of the real challenges that many churches face today is that they're trying to proclaim uh, a 1980 gospel in a 2020 world, a 1950s gospel 
in a 2021 world, I guess the year changed and I didn't see how things change and we have to keep up. Um, we need to be aware that, that the listener should shape the presentation of the gospel, that the audience that you have in mind should influence the way that we share the word of God. We see this in, in the New Testament, in scripture. We see that Paul gives special instructions to Timothy as a young minister, that it's contextualized. The advice he gives is to Timothy how to minister in his youth. He may have given very different instructions had he been ministering or teaching a minister who was 40 or 50 years old. But Timothy gets instructions that are specific to someone uh, who's a young guy. We see that when Luke writes the gospel to Theophilus, that there's way more Gentile and Greek influence in the way Luke is presenting the gospel. It's presented in that context based on that audience. Matthew's gospel is different. He's writing to a much more Jewish audience, so it's presented much more Jewishly in a way that is, is going to communicate more with the people that he's writing it for. And so even in the very first four uh, presentations of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're presenting the story of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in very different ways for very different audiences. It's always uh, been presented by humans to humans in ways that reflect the world of the speaker and the world of the hearer. And it's good for that to happen. We need to constantly be trying to figure out how this works. And it's not just true of the gospel. It's always been true uh, of people communicating God's truth to others. When Moses shows up in Egypt and goes to speak to Pharaoh, the way that he presents the message of deliverance to Pharaoh is done in a way that makes sense to an Egyptian. Moses shows up and starts sending plagues that are targeted at Egyptian gods to make a point that God is God and the Egyptian gods are not, and that God is God and that Pharaoh is not. And it's presented in a way that is very, very targeted at an Egyptian audience. It shouldn't be any surprise that by the time the Israelites are leaving Egypt, that the, the Egyptians are coming up and giving them gifts and giving them presents to take with them as they're going because the message that Moses gave to Egypt landed. Why did it land? Because it was presented in a way that was intended to target an Egyptian audience. We need to be trying to find ways to understand the gospel ourselves and then live it and proclaim it and communicate it in a way that resonates with the people that need to hear it. What that means is that when we think about proclaiming the gospel in our world today, the first thing we need to do is listen to the word of God. And we need to listen to the Holy Spirit. And then we need to listen to the world. We need to listen to the world before we open our mouths with the good news. That the gospel is best proclaimed after listening listening to God, listening to the Spirit, listening to God's Word, listening to the teachings of Jesus, and then listening to our neighbors, listening to our friends, listening to the hurts of the world, the things that make the world excited and passionate, the things that make the world uh, angry, and, and things that, that show exactly who our neighbor is, that it's only after we've listened to them and understood them that we can really figure out how it is that we can proclaim and live out the gospel in a way that makes a difference, in a way that's fruitful. 
It's more than just successful. It's more than just faithful. It's, in, it's done in a way that listens to God, listens to the world, and then lives the gospel and proclaims it in a way that becomes fruitful with conversions, with God's character breaking through, with the kingdom coming into being, with new creation bursting forth, that all of those things happen, not because we keep opening our mouths, but because we open our ears first so we know what to say when we do speak. That it's only after we've listened to the world that we can ask them with credibility to listen to us. That we need to develop this skill of having ears open before mouths open. And if we do it, we're going to have a lot more to say. And, and we probably will have an audience that's a lot more willing to listen. And even if they won't hear our words, if we can figure out how to root and anchor our lives and our churches and our ministries in the way that we interact with people in this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they can deny our words, but they won't be able to deny our faith and our fruit because we become the people that are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to keep talking about gospel. We're going to talk about uh, what it means, what it is, why it matters, how it shapes us, and how we can begin to proclaim it in a way that shapes those who come in contact with us and with Northwest, that they will come in contact with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ when they come in contact with us. And that if we listen to them, we might just have something to say that might make a difference and produce the kind of fruit that God is looking for in the world. Uh, at this time, um, here in just a second, uh, Bill Hole is going to close us in prayer. I just want to tell you again, uh, several this week, one including uh, my son was baptized, Carter got baptized uh, on New Year's Eve, and I, I just want to personally tell you a little bit about that um, because you're muted and I'm not, and I can do whatever I want, um, but it was just really fun over the last year. He's really been wanting to do this and talking about it a lot. In the past couple of weeks, it's become very urgent for him. And, and we've had a lot of conversations with, with Leah and myself and sharing some of our faith story and journey with him and talk about the commitment of doing that. Um, and, and it's been really, really fun. I'll tell you when uh, we finally decided that, that he was ready and I asked him, you know, when do you want to do this? And he's like, soon, really soon. And I'm like, well, if, if there's some people that are out of town, do you want to wait till they come back? And he's like, they can watch it online. Um, we're going to do this. Uh, and I said, you know, when? And he says, before the end of the year, uh, this has been a bad year, and we really need some good at the end of this year. And, and that was a really, really good thing. And, and I know many of you were able to share with us virtually in that, that experience. And, and I want to thank you for that and the support that, that you've had for him. Um, but I also tell you that to say, uh, that the church is not closed and the kingdom is not closed. We are open. We are growing. We are producing fruit. And, and if you're at home right now and you need to, to make a decision to be baptized, if you need to reach out to one of our elders or ministers or, or one of your other brothers and sisters because you have a spiritual need, you don't have to wait till we're back together. The church is open. As long as we are uh, where two or more gather, Jesus is going to be there too. Uh, and so keep being God's people in this and every place where you go. And whatever it is that you need, if you need it, let me or one of our elders know. Uh, we love you guys, and, and we're going to keep doing everything that, that God needs us to do. Okay, Bill, 